Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is a Eugene, Oregon filmmaker, Tim Lewis. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate uh, you having me on, man. Yeah, this is really cool. So uh, this is going to be an audio-only episode, so if you're listening, you already know that. Uh, and if you're listening to this, I want to remind you that you can uh, subscribe to the Spent the Rent Podcast at wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, anywhere. Uh, and also a lot of episodes, not including this one, but a lot of episodes will be available on YouTube, youtube.com slash two RD. So Tim, welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about filmmaking in Eugene, Oregon, and kind of the, the world of a under underground independent guerrilla filmmaker. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're going to do? That's what we're going to do. Well, let's see what we can pull this shit off, man. Yeah. So you've been making, uh, short films and, uh, films of all sizes really for, quite a few years. Tell me what, what got you started in filmmaking in Eugene. Wow. Well, let's see. I, uh, was bartending for a few years in the eighties and, uh, I just knew that that wasn't going to really take me anywhere. And, and then I, uh, started thinking about, uh, Hey, I'm good with imagery. You know, I think I'm good at, uh, I think I'd be good at making movies or pictures or commercials or whatever it was just something visual, visually produced. And so I decided to go to LCC, my community college, and went there for about uh, three terms is all. And then another video and film production friend of mine from high school, Marlon Dara, was already doing some filming and traveling around the world. And so we joined forces and started video producing videos on cruise ships in 1985. Wow. And so just, you know, jumping on cruise ships, videotaping people's cruises, uh, ports of call. And uh, and that's where I cut my teeth on doing video production work was uh, traveling all over the world on cruise ships. Yeah. What kind of stuff were you doing on the cruise ships? Oh, well, like everything, just about. I mean, you know, you're talking about Captain's Night. You're talking about uh, with people in the bow of the ship wanting to talk to their family, you know, about what an awesome cruise they're on, you know. Um, champagne and caviar and all that, you know, stuff was happening on the cruise ships. And then, all, of course, uh, the ports of call. And the first uh, first uh, cruise that we did was a, actually a 100-day world cruise. Uh, it was called the 1985 Grand World Cruise. And uh, we... we went completely around the world and videotape primarily ports of call. And so we put together a two hour uh, documentary essentially and sell that to the people on board ship. And that's how we make our buck. Yeah. So the yeah. way that, the way that I became familiar with you was a short, yeah. a short film that you had made quite a few years ago. Now it was called what a drag. And it was, a, <laughs> and you remember this one and it was about yeah. a kid downtown. They were having an anti uh, pesticide rally and a kid right. downtown that uh, basically was wearing a hazmat suit and had water in a poison container. And police walked by and he had said, this is what, what I remember of the story. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But the, you're pretty right on so far. <laughs> the police had said, uh, said something to him and he basically said, why don't you come closer and you can get poisoned or something to that effect. And they, they didn't really do anything. And obviously, he was joking when he said that and was obviously joking. Yeah. But, uh, but the cops, you know, they don't have a sense of humor. No. And so then they decided it was, you know, they walked by and then they turned around and they said, you know what? No, that's not going to happen. So they took him to the ground, handcuffed him, and then well handcuffed right at Kesey Square, they tased him. 
and yeah. it became a really huge public outpouring. And one, you know, I we had booked this show uh, a couple weeks ago, and the news just continues to be more and more and more about uh, excessive force from the police departments across the nation. So that was originally, I'd saw that. Do you remember what year that would have been? Well, let's see. I think that was around 2008. So like about 12, 13 years ago, something like that. So that must have been and, around and, around the time that YouTube was getting launched, but I definitely saw the video. Well, it stu- yeah. I, I stumbled across it. And yeah. I remember at the very end, the, re- the reason of the, for the title, you said, what an unfortunate circumstance or what, what not. And you said, what a drag. Right. And it was, well, there was the Ian Van Ornum was the, uh, the individual who got tased. And that was one of my, uh, you know, I was in the right spot at the right time, but I fucked up again. There's so many times where I've been out there, not a lot of times, but enough times where, you know, something just goes wrong. And, uh, and that was happened to be one of those days. I mean, I was there, it was, uh, Bill Soulsby, the cop and Judd Warden, the other cop and their infamous cops here in Eugene, they're still on the force. And, uh, and I was just sitting there watching the speaker speak at the uh, Kesey square. And I saw Bill Soulsby, the cop walk by me and I thought, okay, this cat's up to no good. So I jumped up and followed him with my camera and I started recording. And him and Judd Warden grabbed Ian Van Ornum, pushed him across the street, slammed him up against the concrete wall, took him to the ground, and he was just flipping out. And the whole time, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I've got all this shit on tape. And then I realized I'm not rolling, man. Oh, no. I wasn't rolling. And, and all of a sudden, you hear them going, get the taser out, get the taser out. And I'm going, oh, my God, how come I'm not rolling? And with tape back in that time, there was a, a little slider that would record or not record, right? She so wouldn't record over your, your recording on tape. Right. And that happened to be in the wrong position. So I had to eject the tape quickly, you know, put it in the right position, put the tape back in and start recording. And when I started recording that incident, um, they were pulling the taser bars out of his body. But uh, I did still get a lot of good footage, but that a lot of things like that have happened in the past where, you know, things just aren't going quite right. And that happened to be one of those. Wow. And you know, it's, it's interesting. We're going to talk. Let me tell you, it was, that was a drag man. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit today about, about how technology is advanced and how everybody has that camera on their phone. Basically. I don't even know why we call it a phone anymore, but it's interesting because at that time when that happened, not having that footage, probably came across to some people that would see the the clip as being like, why aren't they showing the full clip? You know, you know, and it's a, an honest mistake. Well, that's exactly what the police thought. See, they saw me there and they knew my background. I mean, I, for, we did a thing called Eugene Cop Watch. And I videotaped the cops all the time back in the late 90s. And, uh, and so they were used to me being there and are always rather upset that I was there documenting what they were doing. And so... When I came out with the video, they thought I was holding back on the original footage because maybe I'd videotaped something that uh, revealed that really the protesters were the ones that messed up, not them. And and so what they did was uh, subpoenaed me and were trying to subpoena my footage and uh, so they could take a look at all my raw footage. Um, and so... You know, we had to go to court and the ACLU backed me up and I wouldn't give up my footage. And uh, they dropped the case of trying to get my footage because they thought I had more information than I really had. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's also what went down with uh, that uh, that day in Eugene. Yeah. So early on with filmmaking, uh, what kind of equipment were you using? I mean, this we say talk about 2008. Uh, you got into it, like you had said, quite a few years even before that. 1985. Yeah. 1985. There were, it was really large gear. It was three-quarter inch, three-quarter inch tape we were shooting. The tapes were huge. They were the size of a, I don't know, man, like a, you know, a loaf of bread, man. They were big. And they would only hold like 20 minutes worth of tape. And uh, so you had a giant camera, which weighed, I don't know, 40 pounds, and the deck, which weighed about 40 pounds, and a huge tripod. And that's what we'd carry around. And uh, and that's what I learned on. 
and the quality of it, there was no no such thing as chips back in those days either. It was, there was Plumicon tubes and Satacon tubes in the camera. And it gave a sort of an analog, it was an analog uh, camera. And so it had a warmer feel than the chip feels, just like digital, you know, music or CDs. Um, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, the record player, the records right. have a tendency to be a little more warmer than, you know, the digital stuff. And so did the picture. And so that's what I learned on initially. And then the cameras started getting smaller and smaller, right? And it took a while, but uh, after about, you know, 10 years or so, it got to the size, you know, of uh, the high eight cameras, you know, and the VHS cameras and stuff like that. Yeah, the yeah. little little handy cams and whatnot. Little handy cams. I yeah, did. I did kind of the same thing. I I I would run around town. I bought a handy cam and I was. I thought I would. I would fancy myself to be a documentary filmmaker. And I realized right. really quick that you had to not have a full on plan. You like you said had to be at the right t place at the right time. But I realized you had to be up to speed with the technology because I had bought high eight tapes when digital stuff was coming out and my hard drive space couldn't handle it to edit it and it was a huge. Huge uh, humbling experience to realize I'm like, I cannot do this with the amount of money I have, period. Like, I just, I don't, I can't make it happen. But so early on when you started kind of just hitting the road and, and trying to be at the right place at the right time, uh, what kind of events would you try to frequent to, to well, make that happen? I mean, initially when I really, when I really got involved with sort of, well, I guess a little bit of what I'm known for, right? Sort of forest defense stuff or or, or, you know, anarchist scene here in Eugene in the 90s or early 2000s and stuff, or Eugene Copwatch. I really started out uh, with the, the Warner Creek campaign up in about 1995, uh, up uh, outside of Oak Ridge. And that's when they put a blockade up and, and uh, blocked the Forest Service and loggers from coming up there to, to log this area that had caught fire and uh, by an arsonist. And so people blockaded that road. And so I started documenting that. And I sort of embedded myself um, within that Earth First community that uh, was was doing that uh, on the ground direct action, and uh, and I sort of uh, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people that uh, I was involved with, and they started trusting me. And he had to develop that trust, you know, to be able to document things that people were doing that were illegal. Right. And uh, they trusted me, and so um, I was sort of like uh, again like embedded people might say, but also like a gonzo journalist, a little bit like Hunter S. Thompson, and uh, who just became involved in a subculture of people and started telling that story. And the best way to tell that story is to get close to them and be trusted by them and uh, and let them tell their own story as yeah. you just hit the camera roll, right? Yeah, and that's, so that's what I began doing. That's what I absolutely love about documentary films is that the filmmaker themselves can can and sometimes can have uh, ill intent, you know, towards the person doing it. I I think that with you, you had a respect for what these people were doing, you know, what they were standing for, and you were just kind of a, a you know fly on the wall. But uh, what is yeah, the process? What is the process of gaining access to individuals for documentary purposes? What is the process to gain their trust? Well, I think just just. Uh... Well, I, that, that's the major art form, I think, for a documentary filmmaker, you know, yeah. is that's it. So, you know, you could you could have you be a great camera person. You can be, you know, maybe a, a really cool director. Maybe, you, you know, you can do all these all the techie stuff really well. But if you can't get the story and get the people to be who they are and be genuine, then you ain't getting shit, really. Right. And uh, so the game is to really be genuine and real about getting their trust and getting their trust by, you know, not breaking their trust and, and doing what I did with like the forest defenders and stuff up at, uh, at Warner Creek was start. I started doing short videos for them, you know, like propaganda videos and stuff like that, that would attract college kids to come out there and, you know, protect the forest. I would do things like that. And plus, I just, I lived with them. I partied with them. I got to know them and they got to know me. And so the trust was developed over a long period of time. Yeah. And uh, so I really did become embedded. It wasn't really just a documentary filmmaker anymore. I was also one of them. Sure. And uh, so that helped. And, and I think that's really what's key for telling a story that, 
that has a little bit of drama like uh, Forest Defense and does and uh, and fighting against the machine. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what's happening currently because I noticed in the last uh, few years with some of the Black Lives Matter protests, I've noticed I've I've mostly watched from streams. But I've noticed yeah. that you were present at some of them, and I want to talk about that in a bit. <laughs> but first, I'd like to talk about, uh, and, and really, what I want to talk about in a bit is is kind of your clash with some of the new the new school streaming and whatnot. So we'll get to that. But let's yeah. talk about the film the film If a Tree Falls. So is this is If a Tree Falls connected to the to the uh, project that you were talking about up Warner Creek? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. For anybody who's new to the Eugene scene or 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 new to the old Eugene scene, like from the 90s, um, where I did a documentary called Pick Pickaxe, along with Tim Ream, my partner on that production. Um, and that's the story about Warner Creek and the blockade I was talking about. And it, and so that's a 93 minute documentary about that year-long blockade. Then I did another video called Breaking the Spell, which is about the WTO riots up in Seattle, um, and uh, which, uh, you know, the, you know, the anarchist scene and, and the radical scene shut down the WTO up there. Then the next video that I sort of worked on that helps continue to tell this story is If a Tree Falls. So you got pickaxe, which sort of starts 95 and 97 then you got breaking the spell which is year 1999 then there's if a tree falls and i wasn't the producer or director on a tree falls it was a guy by the name of marshall curry and and it's uh it's called if a tree falls a story of the earth liberation front that's the subtitle and the uh, most of these elf members were people who were connected with the campaign at Warner Creek or even at the WTO in Seattle. Right. So there's a lot of crossover. And in that one, you were kind of one of the major players on camera too. You were interviewed on camera quite a bit, correct? Well, I sort of gave the sort of the history that I'm sort of telling now a little bit, you know, about the Eugene scene and to sort of set up, you know, sort of the foreshadowing of what, why these people started burning shit down. Right. Right. And so that was sort of my role in this documentary. And plus they used, a lot of my video footage from those days. Yeah. So that's how I became involved. And I worked with Marshall Curry for about five years on it. And I was nominated for Academy Award. We didn't win, but it was pretty cool to be nominated. Yeah, that was that so, was that was a really cool film. And I really encourage anybody listening to this. I'm sure I think it might be on Netflix. And if it's not, you can find it just by Googling if it's actually you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube and I mean on PBS. YouTube, and also, you can find Pickaxe on YouTube, and you can also find um, Breaking the Spell on YouTube. So again, I would suggest just to remind you, if I wasn't so clear before, was if I wanted to learn a little bit of the history, the radical history of this area, I'd watch Pickaxe first, Breaking the Spell second, and then If a Tree Falls. And if you watch those three documentaries, you're going to get a good sense of what was going down for about ten or fifteen years in the Eugene scene. Yeah, that's why I really wanted to talk to you and why I wanted to have you on my podcast is because there's such a lengthy history of protest in Eugene, you know, and, there, and I think that a lot of uh, people today, you talk about the history of protests and they, they have no concept of why or what it was about. And, you know, the big thing, I don't want to give away the whole documentary, but the big thing is, is that uh, in that time there was uh, some car dealerships, there was people protesting uh SUVs and how they were kind of gas guzzler, uh, you know, against bad for the environment vehicles. And so they, right. they, they lit some car dealerships on fire and they then they, 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 they were trying to be a vanguard, which is they wanted to be the forefront of a movement that they were trying to inspire. And they were trying to inspire people to go beyond just, you know, peaceful, nonviolent protests. They were trying to get them to burn shit down, to to burn down, you know, corporate corporate headquarters of that were destroying, you know, Mama Earth and the forests around here, uh, you know, horse corrals and stuff that were murdering horde, wild horses and and burning those corrals and uh, meatpacking companies to the ground, and so they were trying to get people to see that this was something that could be done and be effective. And in some ways it was effective and in some ways it wasn't. And so that's essentially what this story is about. 
um, is, you know, the tactics that they used and the philosophy they went in with and, and, and how, what they learned and what they didn't learn, you know, not only them, but also, you know, the, the, the cops that, and the prosecutors that were, were, you know, um, arresting them and, and taking them to court. They they also had their own perspective, which is surprising too. So it's, it's a documentary that it asks you a lot of questions that sometimes it, it doesn't answer itself. You'll have to answer them for yourself. No, you and know? I loved it. I mean, I, I, If a Tree Falls was a, was a life-changing movie. And anytime growing up in a town the size of Eugene and you see something that really captures the feel of Eugene, like you had just said too, from many different perspectives, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I, and I was a huge fan of the... Marshall Curry did a wonderful job and obviously you had a lot to do with with that. So I'm going to I'm going to put link in the show notes to this episode. I'm going to link all of all three of those films to the YouTubes. Cool. And so that'll be really good for people to to be able to cross reference and check out cuz I think that yeah. I think you've done some really incredible work and in if a tree falls is required viewing. You know, it's just one of those things that if you live in Eugene, you haven't seen it, you don't live in Eugene. So, uh, well, I really think pickaxe connected with that and those three together really complete the story. I'm going to start it. And I got to be honest with you. I am not familiar with those two. So, uh, that's you, the, re- you have, you have, and, I, and I know, I know pickaxe, man. Yeah. So oh I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I got something Here's to do now. right here. God damn it. Yeah. So, uh, you haven't prepped at all, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a journalist. I'm a podcaster. So oh, I guess so. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, in the recent, you know, year, I, I noticed that there was some filmmaker or not filmmaker streamer, uh, in the local area. And I, I don't even, I, again, I didn't do my research on it. So you're gonna have to tell me this story, but I, I was watching a feed and I noticed that there was some <laughs> people that were gonna kind of giving you a hard time. And I, like there's an image. Trying to kick my ass, you mean? Yeah. And you had posted about it on Facebook and whatnot. And there was an image with you right in the face of, of, of someone. And tell me the story of what was happening. Well, I mean, it was, uh, there's, wow, I can't believe I can't remember his name, but, you know, Facebook streamers were a big deal, right? You know, during the Black Lives Matter protests and, and all the protests that were going down all over the country, and especially Portland, of course, and Eugene. And and, and so these, these live streamers would uh, have their phones rolling, you know, with their gimbals and, and documenting everything live. And so... Uh, you know, it's sort of cool. It's interesting to have that. But, you know, as a cop, you're going to love to watch the streams. You don't have to leave your office. You can just watch what's going on with the live streamers, right? And see if nasty shit's going on or not, or identify people. And so to me, that is not something that I would have ever done back in my day. Of course, we never had the capability of doing sure. it back in my day. But still, if you're talking about developing trust, right? Live streaming is not a way to do that, I don't think. And uh, it's all up to the people who are doing it. But the problem is some live streamers were accepted by the crowd, you know, whether it's Black Unity or or the BIPOC community or whoever it was, you know, in the Eugene scene, one was more radical than the other, right? And I forget who's who, but, uh, but they would let some of these cats who had been with their their, their culture and their world, let them live stream. But other people that they didn't know, they would try to stop from videotaping physically, try to stop them. And it's just like, you know, this is public streets to right. get the fuck back. So anyway, I went to this one event and, uh, and at the federal building and I went there in camo because I knew there was counter protesters and I wanted to get interviews with the counter protesters. And I thought I'd get it with the camo on. Right. Which I did. Right. And I thought, well, people might know who I am. And I sort of got in with the, the black block crowd a little bit before the march just to sort of say, hi, some of you guys know me. And they did know me. Some of them, you know, who I was and just to, to make sure everything was cool. But then, you know, they started marching and uh, they somebody came with had me with an umbrella, you know, quit videotaping us. And, and I go, dude, I'm going to videotape. I'm on the street. This is what I do. I'm not going to. I'm not a live streamer. I'm going to, you know, if I get anything that's illegal, I'm not going to put it up on my site. That's one thing you can be sure of because that's what I do or don't do. And they just said, we don't want you videotaping us. I'm going to videotape, asshole. And they came for me, you know, and they started yelling at me, fascist, fascist. 
you know, and there was about then about 20 or 30 of them coming for me, you know, and just saying fascist, fascist. And I was going, you guys are goose stepping, man. You guys are really some sick fucks. And then all of a sudden, somebody grabs my camera, right? And uh, so as quickly as I could, I grab that person and throw them to the ground as hard as I can. And then I, once I throw that person to the ground, the thief, I realize it's a young woman. Then I know I'm in deep shit, right? Oh, no. yeah. The young woman I'm throwing to the ground. I had no idea. All I knew, I just knew her as a thief, and that's what she was. And so they came for me full force and had me on the ground. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, had me on the ground, and uh, I got back up, and after a long argument and everything, I finally got my camera back, but... That, that was disturbing to me just because they don't need to know who I am. I don't give a fuck if they, they didn't know who I was. I just gave a fuck that, you know, they were telling people like me and other people not to videotape because, you know, they felt like they had the power and they could do that, but allowing their buddies to videotape who are doing live streams. Yeah, it's and, such a, uh, I watched, it really pissed me off. I, I caught some of it, you know, and I was watching the live stream when it was happening, and, and it just... It was interesting to me because uh, I'm 39, you know, so I've lived in Eugene. I remember all of the stuff that was happening in the late 90s uh, with, I don't use the word riot lightly, but with anarchi anarchist riots downtown there, I mean, there's Molotov cocktails going through the window of Bank of America and in a, in a very different time than what we're seeing today where there's, I'm not trying to compare the two. I'm just saying that, you know, for one, like you had said, there's live streamers People can't get away with that stuff, nor should they necessarily. I'm not. I'm not condoning that. You know, throwing Molotov cocktails ever, but but uh, it's just so, it's changed so much. And for you to be there because this movement currently had taken such a growth. I mean, it was so large this summer that yeah. that you know I'm like, wow, Tim Lewis is there. You know, you got you got the grant. You know, the the Godfather of this type of filmmaking. Uh, in my opinion, in our area, or one of, there's quite a few, I'm sure, you know, but one that was on my radar. And it was just really interesting to me to see kind of, I don't want to say changing of the guards, because I think that you have a lot of, of career left, you know what I mean? But you saw this just clash of new school and old school, like you had mentioned. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, sir, it was old. I mean, they didn't even know I was old school or OG or whatever you want to fucking call it. Right. You know, they were just, you know, they were just, they were all following a script that they were told to follow. Yeah. And that's what they were doing. And they didn't, they didn't know me. They saw somebody in camel. I think they thought I was, you know, a counter protester. That's another thing that was in play, right? My, right. my dress, the, what I was looking like. And so that probably caused them to overreact. Sure. So there's a variety of things, but still, I saw that happen a lot with these protests, and I didn't, I didn't stay involved at all because, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with these cats. I didn't know who, I, you know, frankly, the counter protesters were more approachable than the protesters were, and uh, so, so I just didn't want to have to be, you know, in that world. Yeah, you I mean, they put that. a lot out there. You know, they put a lot out there. Trey Stewart, I know he's been on my show. Well, that's who uh, Trey Stewart's, yeah, been totally involved out there. And and uh, and we got to know each other a little bit. I like Trey and everything. But, uh, you know, that's that's his world. Eh? That's his time. It's not mine. Yeah, it's wild. And, uh, it's wild how much there, it's baby. changed. And, I mean, it just centers with downtown Eugene. There's a lot. So now you live in the Wit, and uh, yeah. one of the things that you've been working on recently is the Whitaker Tales End of the World Project. So tell me a little bit about this. This is something that started during the pandemic where you would just grab your camera well, and just walk well, out. Initially, initially how it started, I started doing a thing called just Whitaker tales. And I would, uh, do a live talk show format at Sam Bond's garage. And I would have like certain people host it and have a few guests. And every time I did this, the first one we did was the 1990s. Like all the stuff we're talking about now, we have guests talking about the 1990s and the Whitaker on Warner Creek and stuff. And, and the, the guests would talk about that and we'd video, I'd videotape it with four cameras and then edit that into an hour and a half long piece that I put up on YouTube. I called it Whitaker Tales. And so did seven of those. And then of course COVID hit and we couldn't do those anymore. And so I just hit the street with my little iPhone six that somebody gave me and started doing interviews out on the street. And 
with uh, I started doing it with Chris Gatsby, who was the Whitaker Community Council chair, and his uh, his girlfriend Annika. And so we went out every day for thirty straight days, man, and did an episode like anywhere from five to fifteen minutes in length. So I'd be on the street and then in the editing room for about 12, 14 hours straight for about 35 straight days doing, uh, we ended up doing 33 episodes in about 35 days. So you can go on YouTube and just type in Whitaker Tales, end of the world, and you'll see all 33 episodes come up. But it was just telling the story of the people in the Whitaker. You know, I walk around, I know a lot of the people, got to know that more of the people and let them tell their stories. And a lot of it was also just funny. And we had a good time. And we we kept a sense of humor in these dire times. And and uh, and so it was, for me, it was a terrific time to get really, you know, creative. And I really was excited about doing these episodes and I really had the juice flowing, you know, the creative juices going. So for me, that, uh, that 35 days of just producing and editing these, these Whitaker tales into the world was just a terrific time. And, and it was a poignant time because it was the beginning of the, the COVID and that's why we call it the end of the world. Yeah. And, uh, and we ran in through until, you know, the end of April. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it was cool. And I think what you do is great because it really, uh, like you said, it's funny. I haven't watched a ton, but the little bit that I've seen of them, you can really tell people just appreciate be, being considered important, you know, important yeah. enough to be interviewed. And that's my whole show. The reason and again, that's trust, you yeah. know, because I, this is my neighbor. I'm from here. And a lot of the people see me on the street, they know me and we get along. And so there's trust right? again, and they're going to open up to somebody that they trust. Right. Right. Yeah, and my whole my whole show my whole show began. I wanted to do stories of the underrepresented, and it's funny right. because I'm going to give a shout out here. But it's it's funny because I reached out to you early on uh, in the process of creating my podcast, and and oh, I, I I don't like this story. <laughs> no, it's totally. It makes me laugh, and and I'm stoked oh, because whatever. Go no, ahead. it's funny. It's we're Finish becoming it. good. We're becoming good friends now, and I like it because. Uh, I had reached, can I trust you now? No. So I had reached out. I had reached out, and I said, "I'm I'm I'm a budding uh, p- podcaster, and I really want this is through through Messenger on Facebook." And I said, "I really want you to come on my show. I've only done a few episodes, three or four episodes, and I don't remember what you said. It doesn't matter. My expectations were that you were going to be like, why would I do that?'" And so uh, we we didn't connect well because it was through the internet. I think in person you would have agreed to do it. Because I, I'm, I've lived I in New Zealand. I've said, how many episodes have you got under, under your belt, son? Yeah, pretty you much. You have 130 before you talk to me. And I think that's where you're at now, That's exactly you? where I'm at. I'm at 100. There we are. Yeah. That was probably it. And so Forrest, I got to give a shout out to Forrest. He reached yeah, out to I'm me recently it. and he said, right. he said, have you ever thought about having Tim Lewis on, on your show? And I said... Uh, tell Tim Lewis uh, if he's interested to look at his messages because and it was fun. And no, so Tim Lewis, uh, go off himself. All, no, all he's got to do is is scroll down on his messages. I already tried, and then yeah. I'm I want to give him a shout out because he uh, he's like I'll, I'll talk to him again and and I'm glad that we're doing this because this is something was a goal of mine was to like you had said gain that trust and be be able to be somebody that was on your radar for doing the same thing. Like we are a great community and what this podcast and filmmaker kind of thing is all about is, is sharing stories of the underrepresented of Lane County. And there's so many great people in our community that just don't get coverage or un- people just don't even understand how great they are. They may look different. They may act weird. They may be missing a front tooth. They're great, you know, and there's just so many of us that, that, I, I think people just overlook and I think that the work that you do and the work that I'm trying to do, I think it's so vital, you know, for that reason. Well, it's fun. I mean, those, those characters that I think that like I try to do, you know, within, if it, you know, not a, um, within into the world are, are intriguing to me. They're, they, they, they gotta be interesting to me too. I mean, I just not going to sit there and go interview some, politician is just boring as hell and it's always saying the right thing and he's afraid to say anything honest you know they're just dull and boring or some yuppie that's dull and boring and and uh you know homeless people on the street who's you know who's you know willing to just lay, really lay shit out to you like we have uh what's it charles 
So you haven't seen Charles in the street for a while, but had him on the end of the world. He's one of our characters and he's the guy, you know, in a sleeping bag. who's always just getting busted by the cops and always asking for something from you. And, and he sang songs to me and stuff. And he was a character and Jesus is another character on the street. You know, wait, that uh, wait. you met Jesus. Jesus, yeah, Jesus is an end of the world, man. The guy who's he's got the long hair and he calls himself Jesus, and he's always sitting somewhere near, you know, near uh, Meiji's or or the parking lot at Tiny's Tavern, and he's usually got a few people hanging out with him, and he goes by Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, and so his stories and his interviews, those cats are. You know, I mean, they're ready to talk. I mean, people are going to pay them attention. Nobody pays them attention. They're just freaks, right? And uh, and so when somebody genuinely is interested in the freaks, they'll tell you their stories. Yeah. And and those stories are intriguing, and those stories are entertaining. Sure. And they're dramatic. You know. I got, I got to say that you know. Uh, I'm pretty open about this on my podcast. I'm about five years sober. I passed my five year mark uh, April fourth, and from from alcohol. Right. And uh, one of the things that I really am, I have zero regrets about my years of of debauchery as a as an alcoholic Irish kid from Eugene, was the people like you're describing that I would find myself chatting with. Because I was, I would just travel the streets. I'm lucky that I grew up in a town at the time that I did like Eugene. I don't know if I could get, do this in many places and not have black eyes and a stolen wallet, but I always found a way home and I was always safe and I was always on foot, you know, but I met some incredible people along the way with my mischief, you know, where I talked to mm-hmm. a guy one time sitting out front of Dairy Mart on West 11th that had uh, duct tape and a garbage bag wrapped around his foot, you know, and I'm like, what's going on with that? And he's like, I can't fit into a shoe. It's too swollen, you know? And, I, and he started yeah. playing these songs for me and I, I just started weeping. I mean, just how on it, this is the craziest thing though. It was beautiful. Just, just getting to talk to this guy and, and to see his soul. So I think that that kind of stuff is so rewarding. I, I totally relate, you know? Well, and that's why into the world to me, it was like, it was an episodic series, right? It was like, and I would always try to find, stay with some of the same characters so the viewers will get to know them you know you you aren't just you're like one and done right you're 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 i'm going back to nelson at the, the the burrito joint and getting to know more and more about nelson more about jesus and more about charles and more about all these other characters because that's what drives the story you know are yeah. these characters and what they're saying and what they're doing and so to me that's that's what's really important um, is, is, is finding those characters that can really drive a story and, and that are, are worth listening to. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I look forward to building a relationship and a friendship with you that I'd like to have you on and, and we'll do some stuff on camera too. Uh, and cause there's, right. There's so many stories of Eugene that I'd like to talk about, you know, they're about the 420 parties at the bull branch, you know, back in the late Mm nineties. And just the, I, I feel like I grew up in the very tail end of the hippie movement in Eugene in the late nineties. I graduated high school in 2000. And so I know you're a few couple years older than me, but, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know what I mean? It was just a beautiful time at the end of well, the late nineties. I'll, I'll give you a heads up right now. You ever heard of Icky's tea house? I was too young, but I, I have started rating the online database yeah. for their songs and that's well, what i'm you, playing you know the, the i've got a lot of video of that by the way too but uh the person who put that together is named sunshine and uh he just moved back to town and he's living on the street just right right around the corner from me wow and he's ready to do interviews and stuff he's quite the character man well we should set that and, up because i have a uh a, a database that i I found on the internet that has all of the bands that yeah. play to Icky's and mm-hmm. I've, I've been, I've been stealing from it and I'm sure that some of them will, will contact me and it'll be fun. But uh short round is the one of my absolute favorite bands. And so I played some of their songs at the end of an episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I was too young for Icky's. I never got to go there, but a lot of my friends who were just a couple years older than me played yeah. there before right. it got shut down. And God, there's so many stories. I mean, that was so. Explain that to us, to the listeners, about what kind well, of place Icky's was. Well, Icky's Tea House was just a place where, well, Sunshine had some sort of inheritance, I think, and uh, and he was just on the street, dude, traveling around, 
I think he was initially some sort of deadhead, and then it became more of a punk, a punk anarchist, crusty punk. And then he came to Eugene, and there's this big space. It's, uh, it's right now it's a Russian church down on Third and Blair, but that space with the big round onion-shaped balls on top of the church that was Icky's that location. And so Sunshine rented that or leased that place out for about five years, four years. And he had the best punk shows, bands from all over the West Coast come in there. And you come in there for a buck and you get in there and watch all the best punk bands from the West Coast. Also, it was a free space where it was also a lot of tea and you didn't have to have any money at all to stay there. I mean, the whole object was you don't have to have money. If you're on the street, you're on the street, but you can stay inside Icky's and sip on tea. And there was uh, one computer in there to do the Internet. And that's when the Internet was first available. And Icky's had a computer that people would go in and check out the, you know, their emails or whatever they did at that time. MySpace or whatever they called it. Right. And, you twit, and, uh, you twit face. <clears throat> yeah, well, that, and that was a place where all the freaks existed and the kids and the homeless and and everybody and uh and the activists were there too i mean we had a cop watch office in ickies and forest defenders were in there also yeah and uh, the cops hated ickies tea house because it it had all the, the riffraff that uh you might hear something about riffraff earlier or later on in this broadcast right yeah yeah but, but they were all there right and so sunshine provided this space this sort of this free space for all the freaks to exist in. And that was Icky's Tea House. Yeah, it's a cool thing. And you can Google Icky's Tea House and on, I think on Facebook and there's a link to the database of punk music. And gosh, there is some great bands, uh, right. you know, that that I've got a lot of friends that were involved with that. Yeah, I was just a couple years too young for that. And to be honest, at the age that it was happening, I probably could have gone, but some of my friends were a little more punk than me. It took me, <laughs> took me a little bit to kind of go down that rabbit hole. And I don't know how far I really went. I was always kind of, kind of had crossover uh interest yeah. some of the anarchist stuff was a little bit above my pay grade or, yeah, what, or whatever you want to say 15 years too old man yeah it got it got a little intense i mean and it was wild i remember growing uh i worked at the m stadium and i'm getting a, dr a ride i lived in springfield so i i was kind of intimidated by eugene at 15 16 years old i hadn't spent a ton of time there mostly springfield i moved here when i was 11 <laughs> and uh we took the wrong turn. I was trying to go to the M's games, have a, a friend of mine drop me off, and we were new to driving. She's 16. And we turned down Willamette Street right as there is an anarchist march going on, and this dude jumped on the car, jumped on her car, and started banging on the windows. It was June 18th, man. It must have been. And, it was and, June 18th, and an anarchist riot. That would have been 98, 98, 97. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so yeah. She, she's like, what do I do? And he's banging, he's, and he starts kicking the window. And I'm like, you got to gun it. I'm like, you got to, I don't know what else to do. I'm sorry. Cause, yeah. and we were scared 16 years old and she did, she floored it and he flew off. And I was, I was scared. I was like, this is what Eugene's about. And then I learned a little bit more about it. And I started learning about people like you. And I learned a little bit more about the scene and it's, I started to, I started to be uh, a little more aware of what was really going on, why people were trying to raise some eyebrows and why people were trying to bring attention to their causes, yeah. you know, and I, yeah. it's, it started you know, to make sense. There's a lot of infighting too in this these worlds too back then, you know, where the, the liberals or you know the radicals, and they were always at odds with each other. And you know, property destruction is not violent, they say, you know, and there's some people it is violent, you know, and and so all these raging debates were happening back then too. And then there was the also the, the um, anarcho-feminists, you know, like the Me Too movement and the anti-patriarchy were all happening at the same time too in the Whitaker in the nineties. And so there was a lot of stuff that was happening that was trying to, people were trying to get people to think about things, but also they were losing their sense of humor and uh, they didn't know how to laugh or dance much anymore. And they were all taking themselves way too serious. And that always becomes a problem in, in some of these movements where their self-righteous attitude just starts popping up everywhere. And as that, that ain't no fun, man. Yeah. What a drag. What a drag. Yeah, what a drag, man. <laughs> so, well, Tim yeah. Lewis, it's an honor. It's an honor to have you on the show. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. Well, and, thanks, Patrick. And I look forward to uh, getting to chat with you more. Like I said, we'll do something in person. So, again, I'm going to link Pickaxe, uh, Breaking a Spell. Breaking the Spell. Breaking the Spell. So, Pickaxe, Breaking the Spell, and If a Tree Falls 
uh, on YouTube are three documentary films that I really encourage anybody listening to check out because it, it really tells a story about the history of the anarchists in Eugene, Oregon. Well, we have three, four, you know, anarchists, I would say, you know, forest defenders, you know, just the sort of the radical edge and things that uh, existed during the 90s and into the early 2000s. One funny story that I do want to talk to you about is uh, Thomas Huda, which I am required to mention every episode. He's going to laugh. This is a shout out to Thomas. Uh-huh. Uh, he sent me a video less than a week ago, uh, unrelated, had no idea that you and I would be doing this episode. And he sent me a video that at that time, he's like, someone made this. Check this out. This is 12 years ago. And it's these guys talking to Jim Tory that <laughs> that. uh, uh yeah. He tell me about this video. So ironically, oh, this oh, is again that you can see that on YouTube. It's got Jim Torrey, the great communicator, you know, uh, under picture Eugene. You can uh, you you should put a link of it. I will there. put a link to picture put Eugene. So but essentially, it's the anarchist. You know, Jim Torrey decided that. Okay, hey, I'll talk to you, anarchists. Just don't, you know, they had a state of the city address, and we were all just messing up the state of the city address and yelling, screaming, kind of, you guys are a bunch of idiots, this and that. And Tori said, if you just be quiet, I promise that I'll meet up with you for an hour long discussion. And everybody said, deal. <laughs> so they met with Jim Tori for an hour long discussion. He was surrounded by the Eugene cops and everything. And he just decided that he wasn't going to say a damn thing. He was just going to listen. And so the anarchists just went off on all these these uh, rants and raves and plays and songs that uh, they developed and uh, just embarrassed the hell out of the mayor of Eugene, Jim Torrey. And you just have to take a look at it. It's hard to describe. I don't want to try to do it because sure. I sound like a fool. But. It was just funny to me that it was it was within this last week that Thomas was like, have you yeah, seen that? How uh, have I not seen this? And I was like, you're going to laugh, but I'm interviewing Tim who made this. I'm interviewing him this weekend. And, and he's like, no shit. He's like, how is this happening? You know, cause, cause we're basically him and I are on kind of the same beat. So, uh, pretty funny, but I appreciate you so much, Tim Lewis. Uh, so you had mentioned uh, a little bit of riffraff. So you chose a song of a local artist, uh, Casey yeah. Neal. Tell me why hey. you chose this song. Well, Casey Neal was the, you know, the main, musician for our movement, the forest defense movement back in uh, the Warner Creek days and all over the Northwest. And uh, in fact, we used the song Riff Raff from Casey Neal during the credit roll at the end of our documentary Pickaxe, which you haven't seen yet. Patrick. <laughs> I'm going but, to. Uh, but we uh, we use that at the very end. So it's a it's a cool song just about anarchists and the Riff Raff and people having fun, man. Yeah, I'm so, going to. So I'm going to choose that. Listen, to, yeah, we'll listen to that to in this episode. So uh, filmmaker Tim Lewis. Tim, it's great to chat with you. Great to get to know you better. I appreciate yeah. you, for, you for coming on. Uh, if always, if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can go to strpod.com slash sponsors and click on one time or monthly donation. It's through PayPal. I really appreciate the the, the local independent sponsors. And I've got some great uh, uh, monthly sponsors as well. Uh Namely, my title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro. Shout out to James Barber and Oregon Cashflow Pro. So, Tim Lewis. Hey, man. Hey, one other thing. Can you keep your phone on so I can hear Riff Raff? Sure. Uh, yeah, you'll yeah. hear it through. Uh, we'll play it. Oh, so, uh, this is cool. This is the first time we've done the phone interview, and I- I'm going to see how this turns out. And the quality uh, of – I wanted to do audio only for this one truly because uh, – this is the, the, the way a podcast is supposed no, to be. No, you didn't. You wanted to do Zoom, but we couldn't pull our shit together, man. That's a fact. That's a fact. So <laughs> we're going to end this with a song. This is Riff Raff by Casey Neal. All right. Good night. Hooray for our band of happy ragged folk. Telling old stories and fireside jokes. Living for the music, the love, and the laugh. Hooray for the Riff Raff. Rock them and Living for the music
Fireside Joe.